today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, before we get to our next guest, uh, lo- uh, Canadians in large numbers will be lining up for COVID-9 vaccines soon as uh, we open up uh, mass uh, vaccination sites. Several have been approved, which raises the question, several vaccines are some better than the other. Efficacy uh, varies, uh, but at the end of the day, the experts are saying, just get something in your arm, and that's going to uh, at least help. Here's a report from Eric Sorensen and Brianna Carnegie. Four vaccines have been approved in Canada. The efficacy against mild COVID has found to be over 90% for Pfizer and Moderna, and between 60 and 70% for Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. But this is where the efficacy comparison can be misunderstood somewhat. The trials have been conducted by different companies in different ways, with different groups, and at different times. Johnson & Johnson, for example, held trials with more older people with underlying conditions. J&J and AstraZeneca both held trials later and in regions such as South Africa, where COVID variants emerged. For all vaccines, protection from severe COVID is closer to 100%, and protection from hospitalizations also upwards of 100%, though the data are changing and nothing is foolproof. The evidence overwhelmingly suggests vaccines all but eliminate hospitalizations and deaths. Eric Sorensen, Global News, Toronto. Now, on that note, vaccinations in Ontario long-term care homes have prevented hundreds of COVID-19 deaths and thousands of infections. So says a a new report that was released on Monday. The Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table said that eight, eight weeks after vaccinations began in December... Vaccinations were reduced by 89% among long-term care residents, 79% among workers, and deaths from COVID-19 among long-term care residents reduced by 96% over the same period. Uh, These data highlight the importance of accelerated vaccine rollout due to priority populations who are are disproportionately at high risk of the infection. Ontario's vaccine rollout began in December with long-term care workers after Health Canada approved uh, the Pfizer vaccine shot for use in the country. Nursing home residents started to get vaccinating towards uh, the end of that month. To talk more about all of this, uh, where we are, where we're going, and how long it's going to take us to get there, uh, let's bring in Dr. Michael Warner, head of ICU at Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, Thanks for having me, Scott. Where, what are your thoughts about where we are, uh, before we get into long-term care and such, about where we are right now? And, you know, we still see lots of concern about the variants. Uh, you, you can see that uh, lots of, of jurisdictions are still being very, very cautious, and yet we're seeing on the horizon vaccinations uh, coming in. What, how would you describe this period that we're in right now? So there are a number of things happening at the same time. So just to kind of follow on the reports that you just played, it's, it's incredible that these vaccines are so effective at protecting people from the meaningful endpoints, which are hospitalization and death. That's really a miracle. And so I think we should be overjoyed with the fact that, you know, hope and freedom is really just around the corner, but we're not there yet. And the next two months, I'm not sure if it's exactly two months or around two months, will be really important because what we have is we have, you know, the variants of concern especially the B117, which will become the dominant strain in a matter of weeks or days, which is likely more transmissible and perhaps causes more severe illness. We have lightening of restrictions um, in certain jurisdictions, which increases the likelihood that people will interact. We have ICU numbers increasing. We admitted 27 new patients with COVID-19 overnight in Ontario, up to 344. We've been over 300 patients for now 75 
days straight. And we're going to have a population that will consist of people who are vaccinated and those who aren't vaccinated, which I think will put pressure on public health to provide people with guidance about how they're supposed to interact with each other during this kind of intermediate period. Uh, that's an interesting point, Doctor, because obviously the U.S., uh, the Center for Disease Control in the U.S. has issued guidelines for those that are have completed their vaccination process with two doses and such. Uh, obviously, we're, we're going to have a delay between first and second. The objective here is to get more doses into arms uh, with a, a relatively short supply. Do we need a separate set of vaccinations for, or sorry, separate set of guidelines for the country uh, because because we have been, or we will have been, uh, soon hopefully mass vaccinating, but only with one dose. Would that be a different set of guidelines than what the CDC is offering? Uh, I think Canada will act independently from the United States because our epidemiological situation is different and the way we rolled out the vaccines is different. I mean, in Ontario, I think only about 2% of Ontarians have been completely vaccinated. So we're not close to where the United States is uh, in totality. And by delaying the second shot, as you've outlined, uh, you know, there could be some creep in that people say they've got the first shot, they see what's happening down south and justify to themselves that it's okay to congregate with other people who are in the same boat as them in terms of their vaccination timeline. And that's tricky. Uh, so I do think the government or government agencies will have to provide people with clear guidelines, and those guidelines might change as our COVID situation changes or as our vaccine rollout uh, accelerates, hopefully. So any, and again, I realize that it's speculation at this point, but any idea when Canadians will be at the same point that the Americans are in the sense that uh, we do have guidelines for those who are fully vaccinated? Any idea when we'll be at that point? I, I wouldn't want to speculate, Scott, because uh, I, I'd rather the government yeah. under-promise and over-deliver on something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. People are looking for it, but we still haven't really entered phase two of the overall vaccination strategy. Phase two is when you know, those who are most vulnerable um, outside of phase one, which are healthcare workers, long-term care, home residents, etc., are supposed to get their vaccines. But if you do the math based on the 24 eligible health conditions, plus all the other carve-outs, there could be four to five million people in that tranche and that could take months and months to get through and that's with the first shot not necessarily the second shot so i still think we have a ways to go which is why it's really important for all your listeners to still stay focused on what they've been doing already which is following public health advice understanding that it's very difficult but you know we're training for a marathon right now we haven't finished it yet and until we finish it uh, we can't really let up these next two months are pivotal how could you, you, these next two months are pivotal? Let's 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 uh, continue with that. Uh, how concerned are you that you know warmer weather, longer days, and then uh, you know perhaps a false sense of security with the one shot that people get a little bit too lax here? Much that we saw between the first and the second wave. You know, I'm most worried about COVID finding the people who either who are unvaccinated but extremely vulnerable, and those you know. Scott, to be honest, 90% of the people in ICUs in Ontario with COVID-19 are under the age of 80. 60% are under the age of 70. It's going to take a while to get all those people, especially those with high exposure risk, those ones working in factories and fulfillment centers who don't have paid time off to get vaccinated, let alone sick leave that's functional. Uh, If we have have a targeted approach that we go after the, the areas where people are most likely to get COVID, I think that will help us all in general. But there will be tension because people will want to be free, which is a normal feeling. I want that too. Mm -hmm. And they'll be held back by something that's invisible, and that's other people not being vaccinated yet. And that will be difficult to adjudicate.
So obviously when this all started a year ago, massive concern over long-term care. My goodness, uh, we certainly didn't know what we were dealing with at that point and, and have, have made a great stride since then in, in at least identifying and, and understanding uh, this coronavirus. Uh, obviously, uh, long-term care is done and, and they're working on all those surrounding uh, workers and, and uh, forward-facing uh, staff as uh, General Hill would put or Hillier would put it um, how and obviously that's a, a great concern uh, as far as uh, mortality with this although you're saying now that the percentages of younger people are, are quite great as well how how much of a difference is it going to make that at least uh, it appears that those most vulnerable in the long-term care set, uh, sessions have been fully vaccinated so I think it was the right decision to prioritize those individuals first because uh, that will uh, prevent death. I mean, it's been effective. Unfortunately, Scott, a lot of long-term care home healthcare workers have been vaccine hesitant, which I don't quite understand, but there's probably something the government can do to help provide those people with reliable information to perhaps persuade them that the vaccine is safe and efficacious and definitely given the work that they do. We also have a lot of elderly people who live at home and may have caregivers coming into the home. We need to make sure they're protected. But of the 25 death certificates I filled out for patients with COVID-19, not a single mm-hmm. patient was from a long-term care home. I don't think this is going to have a huge impact on the hospital or hospitals because, as has been demonstrated by the science table presentations, most of our patients in the ICU are actually from the community. So while it's incredibly positive that uh, fewer people will die and perhaps no more people will die in long-term care homes with COVID-19, uh, we really need to vaccinate more community uh, dwelling seniors and vulnerable people to be able to make an impact on hospital capacity and start opening things up to non-COVID care, which has been deferred and delayed for now a year. Um, uh, so are we seeing more and more younger victims of this coronavirus? I think the average age will go down. I think that's what will happen, what will happen because, you know, phase two will prioritize those 80 plus uh, people early on, which makes sense, which means those who end up sick enough to be in the ICU on average will be younger, so the average age will likely go down. And, you know, I've treated 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. I haven't had a 20. Actually, I've had people in their 20s so far. Most people, the biggest demographic is between 60 and 69 in the ICU, which I don't actually think of as as being an elderly person. I think of that as being a person who still has lots of life to live and uh, and who who could be relatively healthy, which means, you know, this goes back to what I said before. The next two months is really important because we're not even close to herd immunity. Uh, COVID is still circulating widely in hot zone regions, and there'll be the tendency to let the foot off the gas, so to speak, uh, because weather is getting better and people are tired of the restrictions they've been in. Uh, we've talked uh, about hesitancy a bit, but it seems until there's a lot of supply, uh, that becomes more the focal point than hesitancy. Once there's uh, uh, lots of vaccine, then the hesitancy discussion uh, starts. Um, I guess there always be or always has been uh, vaccine hesitancy. Is it more so now? And are you surprised when you hear of uh, personal support workers or healthcare staff that are hesitant. And, you know, I guess why wouldn't they be? They're human too, just like everyone else. Um, but you would think that they're also more aware of this and certainly more aware of of uh, what can happen, the possibilities. I think it depends on where you get your news and what experience you've had with the healthcare system in the past and what your own health is. And, 
you know, social media can be a great place, but it can be a dangerous place of misinformation, especially if you end up in the echo chamber of liking the same things, you get the same information over and over again. That happens on all sides mm-hmm. of things, left, right, yeah. center, um, vaccine hesitant, vaccine pro. So that's one thing to consider. Uh, I think what will happen is that as more and more people get vaccinated and the benefits in terms of freedom, ability to do things, congregate with family safely, etc., cetera, uh, becomes more apparent, and it's reported that almost no one will die of getting this vaccine, and there's very few people who have significant side effects, that those who are on the fence seeing that millions and people, millions and millions of people have gone before them unscathed may line up to get the jab. I don't think you can force people to do it because people feel the way they feel, but uh, peer pressure works, or you know, seeing other people go through the experience and not have bad outcomes also works. Uh, it seems that, uh, that uh, Quebec has... Um, gone it alone on a couple of these recommendations and obviously were quite hard hit at the beginning of this pandemic, but then have, uh, have made great strides, uh, with vaccination because they decided not to hold back the second dose. This was before many were doing so, uh, against the, the advice of Pfizer or, or the manufacturers rather or Health Canada. Now as time goes by, we're seeing more and more real world evidence, real time evidence rather that, that, that this is, is something you can do. Uh, Quebec uh, delaying the second dose and now saying they will administer um, the AstraZeneca to 65 plus, which Health Canada has approved. Your thoughts on sort of mixed messaging we're hearing from various provinces across the land. You know, Scott, full disclosure, I'm not a vaccine expert or a virologist or an epidemiologist, but uh, I think what we're seeing is, is science being played out in the media and social media in real time without you know, the typical delays that allow for peer review, reflection, etc., because the situation is so dire and because we're trying to get the world's economy back on its feet, let alone Ontario and Canada's. So I think we'll only know in retrospect whether the decisions were the right ones, but uh, you know, I myself think that AstraZeneca over 65 makes sense based on what's been seen in the UK, uh, England, and specifically uh, that it's been safe and efficacious. And if I was older than 65, I would just want the, the vaccine I have access to as quickly as possible in my arm. Dr. Michael Warner's been with us, head of ICU at Michael Guerin Hospital. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Be well, and uh, thanks to all that you and your staff do to keep us all safe. Thanks so much. Take care, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are in week number 52. Yes, a year ago, we were asked to go home. And some of us are still there. Uh, feel free to wade into the conversation. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there. The Center for Disease Control in the United States issuing guidelines what you can do once you are fully vaccinated. Uh, interesting uh, where they are compared to where we are as uh, we uh, get through the 52nd week of uh, the global pandemic as far as being at home. Obviously, uh, COVID-19 it, uh, originated back in December of uh, 2019, but uh, here we are. Uh, that being said, uh, we have watched the United States go from uh, zero to hero in a very, very short period of time. And now, uh, as well as getting guidelines on what to do after uh, they have been fully vaccinated, uh, stimulus is finally making its way 
through uh, the political system in the United States. And many are saying that, uh, or some are saying, this could uh, fuel some of the fastest expansion the United States has seen in decades. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder with us, a business professor at Discrete School of Business at McMaster University and is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm fine, thank you. My late father's first name was Carmen with a C, and he always assumed Elvis wrote that song about him. C.C. Ryder. <laughs> there you go. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, he did. Why not? Yes. Let's, go, let's go for it. I can't argue against it. I have no facts to, contra- to be contradictory. <laughs> there you go. Uh, many have said, Marvin, once this finally, once we're finally past this, or as best we can get past COVID-19, whatever the new world is, mm-hmm. and once the tires get traction, it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties. Is that accurate, do you think? And I guess, obviously, we have no way of actually predicting this. <laughs> well, well, thank you for setting me up for failure like that, Scott. I appreciate it very much. Uh, let me come let's, at this let's a couple put of C. ways. C. Right. Let's put C.C. Ryder back on. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me come at this a couple of ways. Uh, you mentioned that Mr. Biden just had a, 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 or they're in the process of approving a, another package. This is not the first package in the United States. This is about the third or fourth package. One key difference to the way the Americans are doing it to the way we're doing it in Canada, our programs have been targeted to specific individuals, for instance, people who had lost their job or people who need enhanced employment insurance benefits or to small businesses, etc., whereas the United States just seems to be handy, uh, happy to hand people a check. This most recent one is going to give everyone a $1,200 check. Um, now, here's the concern. We know that now that the vaccines are getting distributed, whatever pace they are in Canada and in the United States, the numbers are going to start going in the right direction, and we'll see more opening of the economy. Last year, both Canada and the United States saw the economy shrink by around 5%, and so because the economies tend to be fairly resilient, we should, do, we should come back this year a fair amount. In fact, typically inflation might be or growth might be around 1.5%, 1.8%. Most people are suggesting this will be equal to what we went down. In other words, we'll have a 5% growth year. So here's the challenge for Christia Freeland as she works on the budget that we now think is going to emerge in April. Um, How much support do we need to continue giving? Clearly, we're not out of the woods yet, and we probably won't be until at least the third quarter of 2021. Uh, airlines, uh, the tourism sector, the hospitality sector, they're still hurting and they still need some support. But too much support, then you start to overheat the economy, inflation comes roaring back, and then suddenly the Bank of Canada is going to say, well, we'd better jack up those interest rates. So we've got to walk a very fine line here. Let a certain amount of growth happen naturally as we bounce back, and that's why we, we know the numbers are going to be strong this year. But we don't need to necessarily make them stronger than they would be naturally. And so that is the challenge. And, in fact, I think why Christia Freeland has delayed the budget. It was supposed to be out by March 30th. Now it looks like it will be at the end of April. She wants more time to study to see, okay, what, how, how fast are we bouncing back? How fast can we get the vaccine delivered? How close can we get to normal before she starts to talk about the supports needed? Uh, many have, uh, I remember the Bank of Canada saying way back when they, they expect uh, this instability till maybe 2023 before we start to see rates uh, increase. Do you still see that as being the forecast? 
Well, uh, so let me go back. Bank of Canada said that uh, these low interest rates we're seeing will not change in 2021 and probably wouldn't change until 2022. As you say, they thought they might start to move in 2023. But there was a big asterisk beside that sentence, and that was depending upon what the heck happens with COVID. You know, even as we're talking today, I, I tend to be an optimistic fellow. I think we've hit the bottom, and I think we're clawing our way back. But there are those pessimists among us who say, wait a minute, Marvin, there's going to be a third wave. These variants are going to come roaring, and we're going to have another. I don't know which way it's going to go. And so Bank of Canada, it's, I, I take anything they say more than, say, three months or six months down the road with just a big asterisk, a big grain of salt. It all depends on where COVID starts to go. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, vaccination pick up in the United States. Uh, now they're saying with this stimulus, it could be the fastest expansion in 60 years. What does that mean? How does well, that translate? Certainly the fastest expansion we've seen since the Great Depression and, and possibly the fastest expansion we saw. There was a, a deep recession, remember, in the early 1980s when interest rates got to 21%. So, you know, it's possible. It's possible and it all depends upon where we go as a society. And you and I have chatted about this before. Do we want to go back to the way the world was in January, February of 2020? So, for instance, are we going to get back on the GO trains? Are we going to be commuting to downtown Toronto? Are we working in those offices 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, with the weekends free? Can we hop on a plane and go to the Caribbean or go to Europe and resume what we did before? Or has a year of, of sort of this COVID in the air and working from home, what have you, changed the way be, we behave? Uh, will we, for instance, not want to go back to restaurants? Will we just want to order food in? So great news for Uber Eats, great news for Skip the Dishes, but maybe not such great news for some of the restaurants who, have, uh, uh, who, who lose money in some of those transactions. Uh, same thing with buying. Will we go back to the stores or are the futures all about Amazon, buying on Amazon and having boxes delivered to your home? I don't. I just don't know because we've never done something like this where we've locked people down for a year and then said, "Okay, you're free to roam." Will they come out of their house? And we just don't know. What kind of investment will the U.S. see? What is it? Will we see a building boom, an infrastructure boom? Uh, we've heard "build back better." What does all of this mean? Yeah. Well, again, some of those are nice things to say, but I don't quite know what they mean. Generally speaking. Uh, the feeling with Mr. Biden was that he wanted to do a round of infrastructure investment. And you hear that a lot from governments. They don't just like sort of spending, sending money out the door. That's a short-term stimulus. But uh, rebuilding a bridge, rebuilding a road, putting in a new airport or refurbishing an airport, they tend to deliver longer-term benefits for the dollars that you're spending. He's not actually given any details yet about what that is. And then uh, both he and Mr. Trudeau, in talking about building back better, have also tried to embrace this this idea of a greener economy as we go. You start hearing things like being net carbon neutral by the year 2050. So what's it going to take for us to do that? Well, that would mean, for instance, significant investments in the power infrastructure so that we aren't generating power by burning natural gas or coal or oil, that we're getting it from more renewable sources. And some of those require a little more upfront investment costs as we go. Uh, he, he, he's not been really clear at this point about the programs. In fairness to him, and even for that matter, Mr. Trudeau, you have a disease to fight, so let's get this wrestled to the ground before we start the building back, because we don't get it wrestled to the ground. There's no point in building back. But those details are going to emerge throughout this year. 
and how much spending, where is it going to be spent, what targets are they going to have. These are all important questions. And conceivably, here in Canada anyway, with a minority government, could lead to an election. We don't think there's going to be an election in the next two or three months, uh, uh, but I, I wouldn't be shocked to see an election this fall when those details start to emerge and then you get a conflict between one party's vision and another party's vision of the future. Uh, as we've said many times during this global pandemic, it, it's one it's a once-in-a-lifetime uh, scenario, hopefully. Yeah. Um, can we compare this, or will we be able to compare this to the boom we saw post-World War II? Uh, Post-World War II or even post-1918, that's when the last Roaring Twenties happened about. I just would put a big caution here. You know, at the end of the Second World War, it wasn't so much that we'd all been locked in our homes, but we had lost a significant chunk of the population fighting in that war. We'd also invested heavily in an industrial complex whose job was to build tanks and guns and boats and planes, and we didn't need all those tanks and boats and planes after the war, so we had to convert them. And that's really where we saw the rise of consumerism for the first time in, in the developed world. We had a surplus of goods. All those factories could crank out whatever you wanted to buy in massive quantities, and consumers got power. They didn't have to wait. You, you know, just to go back to that 1918 period, Henry Ford once said you can buy any car you want as long as it's a Model T and any color you want as long as it's black. He wasn't exactly a consumer-oriented person, <laughs> but in the 1950s when those factories got converted back to producing consumer goods, consumers had choice. I don't think we're going to see it quite the same way here because uh, we've just shut these things down. We haven't converted them to some other use. Um, so I, I don't think that's going to happen quite the same way. But certainly in the last year, we've seen this, Scott. People's expenses, the average family's expenses have gone down. They're not spending as much money. And here's good news. The average family is saving a little bit more money. Is that going to continue on? Or was this just a, a one-year thing? And then people are going to go out and say, now I've got some time. I'm going to buy some toys. And, and again, we're just not sure which way people are going to go. Uh, we're talking about uh, the stimulus in the United States uh, that is getting approved. What would that mean for Canada? Is there any is there any spillover there? Well, I'm going to say no, um, because the amounts, although significant, are still relatively small. When a family gets twelve hundred dollars, they're most likely going to you know, maybe replace a washing machine or get a new TV set, or maybe they'll have more money for food or more money to pay the rent. So I'm not sure that directly means anything for us. But, um, for instance, one of the things we've noticed, and you may have noticed, is that the price of gasoline has gone up in the last few weeks Mm -hmm. because the price of oil has gone up. And why has the price of oil been going up? Well, the expectation is if we're letting people out of lockdown, then people are going to want to hop in their cars and drive and, and drive and drive and drive and drive. And so the price of oil has gone up in expectation that that change is going to happen. And we also believe that whenever you say to people, you can fly again, suddenly airlines are going to be flooded with passengers who need to see loved ones halfway around the world or halfway across a country. You know, there have been babies born that grandparents haven't physically seen and so on and so forth. That's what we believe, and that's why there's this feeling of optimism in the air. Um, I, I just my feeling is that the virtual world got us through this, but it's not a substitute for human contact, and that when they are given a chance, people will want to go back to do some of the things that bring us physically in touch with our loved ones, not just virtually in touch with our loved ones. But again, 
you know, we just we just aren't sure is it going to be 100 percent, 50 percent, 20 percent. We just don't know because we've never done anything like it before. Um, uh, obviously this, like you said, this is something that we have not been through before, uh, talking about this stimulus, uh, people saying going to be like the roaring twenties. Is this setting us up for a perfect storm? Is this setting us up for failure, a catastrophe, uh, another major recession, something of that, uh, something no, of that? In fact, my, my concern is the opposite, that we would suddenly see a real spike in inflation, the cost of living go up. You know, we, we've been living now for nearly two decades with annual inflation somewhere between 1% and 2%. Um, you know, if it, for two months, three months, it got to 3% as we started to bounce back, we can live with that and absorb that pretty easily. But if inflation got to 5% or 6%, then that's, that's something that's going to start changing things. We've even seen that in a sense with the price of housing going up the way it has been. If you're in the market, it's fine, but if you've thought about getting into the market, these rising house prices, dramatically rising house prices, have, have changed people's behavior that way. So I'm not worried about a, a recession. You can't have growth and a recession at the same time, but we're more worried in sort of hyper-growth, too much growth too quickly. So the challenge for Christia Freeland, and for that matter, the people in the United States, is stimulate where it's necessary, but don't stimulate across the board. Let nature take its own course, and that's finding that balancing point. Withdraw the supports too quickly. You might have a collapse. We don't want that. But leave them in place too long. You're going to overheat the market, and we don't want that. So finding just that right balancing point going forward, that's the challenge in front of the governments. And and I, I think they'll find something close to it. But don't be shocked if... Let's say in the month of April or the month of May, we learned that inflation that month was 3 or even 3.5%. Look at the price, again, of gasoline. If you throw that into the mix, it's gone from 90-something cents a liter to $1.25 a liter. That has a huge impact on the cost of living, but it's because it went down a year ago. So it's just about recovering, I, uh, and I think you know, we'll see some of those numbers, but just don't, don't panic when you see them. Will a lot of that growth be stalled until the borders open up between the U.S. and Canada? Yeah, that's, I mean, that goes back to getting all parts of our economy functioning. If we really want tourism and hospitality and travel to go back, we've got to get that border reopened. Now, I'm, I'm not in a rush to do it. Again, we have to do it for good health reasons. Uh, closed at the moment, at least till March 21st. We haven't had a, a pronouncement about April 21st. Um, but, you know, it's all about getting back to normal, allowing people to do whatever it is that people want to do. And, and certainly in the summertime, which for us begins around the May 24th weekend, that's again when travel comes to mind. People want to go camping. They want to load up the car and maybe do a cross-border shopping trip, which they've been unable to do for 12 months. It just feels to me that whenever we get those last pieces together, you will see consumers resuming that activity both ways. Americans coming up here to spend their dollars, even though they don't quite go as far as they did before, but also Canadians willing to go south because now, again, our dollar is going maybe just a little farther. Uh, those are all the necessary components to getting us back to some kind of new normal. Uh, I'm going to blindside you here, Marvin. I don't think I was uh, made you aware uh, that I wanted to chat about this, but we've got some time. So I would like your opinion on Line 5. Uh, it's something that has gone under the radar for a great deal of time and now is starting to uh, to get some more exposure. Uh, there it seems to be a real concern that this will be shut down by the Michi uh, Michigan governor. Y your thoughts. Uh, is this a, a major concern? 
Right. So I'm going to say yes. Uh, generally speaking, pipelines are seem like a great answer. You know, we talked about the Keystone XL pipeline, but what people forget is they go through various jurisdictions. Federally, you've got a pipeline in Canada and you have a pipeline in the United States, but within Canada, it goes through provinces. Within the United States, it goes through individual states. And as we've seen, for instance, talking about east-west transmission of oil, Quebec has an attitude at the moment which is quite negative towards pipeline. So some proposed expansions to get Alberta oil to the east coast so that they could refine it for the maritime provinces, uh, Quebec said no. And, and Michigan, I, I have to be candid with you, I'm just not quite sure where Michigan is coming from here. This Line 5 pipeline is not a new pipeline. It's been there for some time. Now there's, again, like all things, it's been there so long it needs to be modernized and updated. There have been leaks. There was a bad spill in Kalamazoo a couple of years ago, one of the largest, actually, spills in the United States that year. But that's in part because that pipeline is getting old. And so I'm not just quite sure where, where Michigan is coming from all of this, whether this is part of their environmental movement to say we must move away from oil. Uh, or So is it a no at all costs, if you will? Or is it a no with an asterisk? Well, it's a no unless you do A, B, C, and D. And I, I just haven't heard them clearly explain their position. So I'm not sure where they're coming from. But if I am uh, Enbridge, who I believe owns that pipeline, I'm, I'm quite concerned and I'm taking a look at it all. Uh, interesting article by Diane Francis in the Financial Post today saying that this would put pressure on Quebec to permit an east-west pipeline because we're having to depend on other countries for uh, our self-sufficiency here. Yeah, and, and, you know, we've got an interesting period right now between the federal government and the provinces. Um, provinces are saying, you know, as we come out of COVID, we need to take a look at funding for health care and, and uh, the transfers to the various provinces. And that's kind of what they want. This might be a chance for the federal government to say, well, I'm, I'm happy to consider some of the things, but here's some things that I want. Can we do some horse trading as we go? Um, it, and it's just it's not clear to me in the case of Quebec um, how flexible they are. They, they seem to have made this a hard no, and they don't seem to be prepared to compromise. But uh, if, I, if I take a page from the Donald Trump School of Management, everyone's got a price. The trick is to find out what that price is. And so if you want it bad enough, uh, you might be able to make them happy. We, we, we just don't know. But it is worth reminding the provinces that it is a confederation. We work well when we all work together, and that always means a little bit of compromise. But I've noticed, for instance, Alberta has submitted a wish list to, to Ottawa. I think there's $30 billion of projects they would like to see funded which is well above what they would normally have been getting. And again, I think this is a test for the Trudeau government, who has no representatives elected from the province of Alberta. If you don't give them $30 billion and there's an election this fall, will you get anybody elected this fall? How badly do you want to buy some votes in Alberta? Uh, you know, I, I don't know what those priorities are going to be. Every year that goes by, is it harder for an east-west pipeline to be a reality? I mean, this has been chatter for an awful long time. Many relate it to uh the the trans canada railway and, and just getting uh things from east to west west to east and east and such is this harder to do as time goes by considering where we are right now in 2000 or 2021 yeah, yeah i'm going to say yes in the sense that anytime you're, if you're talking about a new pipeline 
in 2021, knowing again these goals of trying to, for instance, the car companies are saying they're not going to be selling cars that are fueled by gasoline by 2030 or 2035. Um, we want to be carbon neutral by the year 2050. It, it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense to build a new pipeline that might have a 20-year payback period if in 10 years or 15 years our, our consumption of oil products are going to change dramatically. It does still make sense, however, to maintain pipelines and take a pipeline that's already in operation, make sure it's up to date, make sure it's modern, and if in doing that means there's a modest expansion of it, so be it that land has already been claimed. And so I'm, I am more uh, comfortable, if you will, with, with dealing with existing pipelines and modernizing them, or maybe in some cases twinning them on the same route than a virgin pipeline, again, because there's so much that's not quite known about where we're going to go with our energy consumption going forward. Even something like renewables, you know, many people scoff at things like solar power and wind power, but thanks to technology, the cost of that has come down so that it's very much equivalent, and, and uh, uh, you're not losing money uh, anymore having to, to use those te technologies to generate electricity for our grid. I just think it's an interesting question if, after being at home as we are, we are prepared to move more into the electrical world. A few years ago, the answer was no. Everyone was complaining about their electricity bills. But oddly enough, you know, we've been home. We've been consuming more energy at home. I haven't heard the same chatter about electricity bills in the last 12 months. Uh, they've been stabilized, haven't they? Don't they keep introducing programs that keep the, the rates relatively low? Uh, I think it's a different story for those in cottage country, Marvin. Yes, it uh, probably is, or part, people in the rural area. But to yeah. the government, you know, they've actually, the Ontario government has withdrawn some of those supports. There actually have been a couple of increases over the last year. Yeah. It just I haven't heard the same backlash as we did when Kathleen Wynne was in power. So I don't know. Consumers, consumers are a funny lot. You know, we tend to look at each problem and we, suddenly our focus goes over here and we forget that problem over there. The, the more I deal with consumers, the more I find them very unpredictable. Marvin Ryder with his business professor to Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thank you so much for your time. Be well. I will. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.